Morning. I apologize in advance. I've been fighting a cold all week. And what voice I have, I might have used up singing since Arnie put together such a good song list. So Arnie, I blame you. I think it was Glenn Duncan at Church in the City a couple weeks ago who said as we approach this Resurrection Week, it feels like nature hasn't quite caught up yet. And certainly last Sunday, I would say, where we were inside celebrating the Resurrection and outside, it felt a little dreary. But it's been nice to see a little breakthrough this week. Yeah? I've been out on my bike enjoying that and and just been able to rest and bask a little bit in in, uh, a little bit of spring weather. Maybe not fully there yet, but we're getting close. And as we, as we move forward, coming out of Easter weekend, I think uh, it was a good reminder, Arnie, that we, we start thinking of, okay, what, what's next? And, and that reminder that, that what we're looking for is glimpses of that resurrected life, that we get to encounter Jesus in our day-to-day walk, and we might even be surprised by where and how we encounter him. And, uh, and I think that's a, a really good way to approach moving forward and, and where we're going today. Today we're kind of following up Easter, as well as wrapping up the series that Brent's been doing in John for the last couple months. We are going to be in John 17, which is often called the High Priestly Prayer. It's called that because it's understood that here Jesus intercedes for us, his people. And so like, a, like the great high priest that he is, he, he appeals to God on our behalf and, and asks certain things of the Father in light of his departure. I think this is a good passage for wrapping up John because we come back to a lot of the basics of what it means to be a Christian. And again, I think that's a good follow-up to Easter. In fact, that's what I'd like to do this morning, is really go through this passage and simply ask the question, what does it even mean to be a Christian? Because I think these being Jesus' last words before he is arrested and taken to the cross these being quite profound teachings on Jesus' ministry and what he wants God to do in, in the lives of his followers, I really think it boils down to some of the most essential things. And so, and so we're going to do that. We're going to go through the entire chapter, bit by bit, and we're going we're to consider what it is that it means to be a Christian. Let's open on a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you excited to be able to enter your word and and to be looking for those glimpses of your son in everything that we do. We know that that you have raised Jesus, that he is seated on high, and and that that life in abundance is available to us, that we we have but to ask and we will receive eternal life, and and we we can walk with you through the things that we face. I pray that you would speak to us through your words today, that as we turn to this prayer, you would stir up in our hearts a deep desire to really live out our faith and to love you the way that your son demonstrated for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know you in truth, that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may, be all, uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even uh, loved them, even as you sent uh, loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, who feels like they got it the first time through? I don't know about you, but when I read John's gospel, I often feel like it's awfully complicated. The words aren't necessarily, although there are a couple bigger words in this passage. But I feel like sometimes the way the phrases fit together just don't quite compute in my brain. I find that particularly interesting because John's gospel is often recognized as being one of the simplest and most profound of the gospels. And I actually think if we move through it slowly, the meaning is pretty clear. But it can be a little daunting when we go through it all in one chunk. And for that reason, what we're going to do is literally just go through it bit by bit and walk our way through the different things that are said here that show us what it means to be a Christian. I think this passage can be broken up roughly into three chunks. The first chunk is Jesus' prayer for himself. He spends verses 1 to 8 asking the Father to do something for him, to glorify him. So we're going to stop there first. Then we're going to move on to part 2, the second half, in which he prays for his disciples, the people who were immediately following him, the 12 minus the one who was lost. And here we see that he asks God to preserve them, to unify them in face of the things that they're going to 
see happening over the next little bit. And then the third part, the last bit, Jesus prays for us. That is, the disciples, but all of those who will come to know the word of God through their work. And there he asks that we would be united, that we would share in the calling that he has placed on the apostles. So let's go through that bit by bit, and again, I think we'll see, each of these shows us an important component of what it means to be a Christian. Verses 1 to 8. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know him, or sorry, that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and, that they, and they have believed that you sent me. In this passage, Jesus only really issues one request in this entire prayer. That is, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Or we see it again in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here I think we see Jesus' heart for his own life and ministry. I think that especially verse 5 is a, actually a beautiful request. It, it, it almost sounds a little bit lonely, does it not? Here is God the Son, who's been on earth, working hard to bring people into knowledge of the truth. And he says, the hour has come. Now, Father, Glorify me into your presence. Bring me back into your presence. Allow people to see me reuniting with you. We had this before the world even existed, he says. We were one. And I miss that. I want to come home. I think, I think this is a beautiful portrait and at the same time, there's a little bit of a mystery here. Here's God the Son saying, let me come home. But when does he say it? As he says, the hour has come. As he says, my work is complete. You notice there's one thing left that doesn't really fit our normal understanding of what this might look like. And that's the cross. We could almost see Jesus praying this request after having gone to the cross, couldn't we? Father, here I am hanging on the cross. I have done all of the work that you had appointed for me. Now, now bring me home because I'm suffering. But he doesn't say it hanging from the cross. He says it before even going to the cross. 
Glorify me, Father. Glorify me by what? By having people arrest me? Beat me? Put a crown of thorns on my head? Mock me? Yes. Yes, in fact. I think that is part of the glory that Jesus is seeking here. You see, Jesus makes it very clear. The work that you have sent me to do, I have finished. That is, he has already spoken to the disciples all of the things that he thinks they need to know. He's already told them, I'm going to die. He's already told them, this is an example of God's love, that in me you see the Father. He's already put in place all of the things that are needed. From here, Jesus just has to let things unfold. And they unfold. God answers his prayer. As soon as this prayer is finished, in come the soldiers. Time for you to be glorified, O King of the Jews. You see, this is the mystery. The glory of God is revealed in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension. All three have to come together. All three are an essential component of Jesus' glory in this world. The truth which Jesus came to reveal is this, that God the Father, who has every right to punish us for our sins, is willing instead to forgive us at his own expense. He's willing to pay the price for our sins, to lay his life down rather than seeking revenge against us and demanding us to make the life payment. As we talked about last week, as we talk about most weeks, this is a glorious thing. Jesus' glory is to be the resurrected and crucified Lord, the one who has all authority on heaven and earth, the one who is raised and can give eternal life, as he says here. And the way that he gives eternal life is by dying for us. The way he gives eternal life is by making that payment that none of us could make. As odd as it seems, Jesus' prayer for himself includes the cross. Father, I have labored hard. Now would you be with me as we complete this journey, pay the price, and then I get to come home. What does it mean to be a Christian? The first element is simply to proclaim Jesus is Lord. To accept that the one who was crucified and raised again is the Lord of all life. That we owe him everything and that we're willing to follow him. This is a once and always type of thing. There will be a point in your life where you have to accept that if you're really to be a Christian. We call it conversion. Sometimes it happens quickly. Somebody wakes up to the glory of this, sees how good God is that he would forgive us at his own expense, and says, this is it. I'm in. For many of us, it's slower than that. 
You meet people who love God. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's some friends. Over time, you begin to say, what they have, I want. You come to church. You hear this preached over and over and over again. And somewhere in there, it just takes hold of your heart. Yeah, this is good. I want this. But you have to acknowledge it. Oh, Lord, I want you. If you're really this good, I'm willing to give my life up to you. What it means to be a Christian is to accept what Jesus came to do. To save you from your sins. To give you eternal life. Moving forward, he prays for the apostles. Starting in verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. Who is them? That is those who God had given him. His followers, his disciples. Maybe the 12 specifically. Maybe the larger body of believers who were around him at that point in time. We see in Luke, for example, that there were at least 72 who he considered that he could send out on this mission. Whatever the number, Jesus clearly is praying for the people who are there with him at this point in time. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I may have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. What is Jesus' prayer for the apostles? Preservation. Jesus says that he wants God to keep them, to preserve them as he leaves. He recognizes that as he goes to the cross, as he's raised again, as he ascends to God's right hand, as he goes through this process of glorification that we've described, that the burden falls on their shoulders now. That just as he was sent into the world, he is now sending them out into the world, and that that world is going to be a hostile place to their message. And so he says, I do not ask, in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, Lord, they're going to face assault. Lord, this is not going to be a message that people receive easily. I don't ask them that you spare that. 
I don't ask that you spare them the suffering, the shame, the difficulty that comes with it. They need to face that. That's part of the message going forth. But what I do ask is that Satan would not have them. That the enemies that oppose this message would not be able to squash it. That they would remain faithful, even to death, so that the world will hear this message of salvation. He uses a technical term here, one that you probably don't hear much outside of the four walls of the church, sanctify them in truth. The word sanctify is linked to the word saint. It means literally make them pure. Make them saints. Make them into the kind of people that the world will look at and say, here is truth. Here is something worth listening to worth following. Was this prayer answered? Yeah. Yeah. Each and every one of us here owes our faith to the apostles, to Jesus' immediate followers who were preserved by God, who went out into the world after his death and resurrection and proclaimed that message boldly. They proclaim that message boldly, even under death. Almost every one of them died a martyr. The only one that tradition says didn't die a martyr, John, died in exile. They suffered a great cost for the gospel. But they were preserved. Satan could not squash that message. We have it recorded here in these books we call the Bible. Each and every one of us can trace our spiritual lineage back to those apostles. Even though I doubt any one of us could do it even two or three generations back, really, on a conscious level. Somewhere in there, we know that one of the apostles preached that message and somebody heard it, received it, preached it again, and that it has continued to this day. It has been preserved. To be a Christian means to sit at the feet of the apostles. We don't get to have them here with us today. But we are indebted to them, and we must listen to the gospel that they preach. We have to be immersed in this, the word. This is not all of the Christian life. As we'll see, there's another component to how we live it out. But if we do not know the message that the apostles preached, we're not really a Christian. This is a wonderful thing that we have in front of us, these Bibles. We must sit at their feet and learn and recognize they paid a great price so that we could even have knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins and is seated on high. So then to be a Christian means to receive Jesus as Lord, to sit at the feet of the apostles and learn from them about that Lord? Then what does it look like on the ground level? How do we begin to live that out? The answer is given in the last part of this passage. 
Starting in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that is, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's the first generation people who believe the word, and it's every generation since. All those who have believed the gospel as a result of the apostles' work. And Jesus begins praying for us. I do not ask for only the apostles, but also all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What does Jesus want for us? For us who are the thousandth generation to receive the gospel since the apostles first preached it? That we would be as one. that we would be as one. It's that simple. Jesus doesn't pray that we would be theologically astute. He doesn't pray that we would be able to preach the gospel like nobody else. He doesn't, he doesn't pray that each and every one of us would have a Mercedes. Certainly not. <laughs> There's lots of things he could have asked on our behalf. The thing he asks is that we would be one. Why? So that the whole world would know something supernatural is going on here. This is a missional thing. Jesus wants the church, the people of God, those who have come to faith through the apostles' teaching, to be united because that is a great sign that this gospel we hold really is from God, that it's supernatural. Do we live this? Has this prayer been answered? As much as it would be easy to look around and say, hmm, I'm not so sure. I don't see all sorts of love here. Sometimes the church can be a pretty messy place. Actually, I would say, yes, this prayer has been answered. Again, we're indebted to it. If any of us here are Christians, it's because we saw love modeled through Christians. Not one of us came to faith out of the blue. Each and every one of us experienced it through the love of Christians. Can we do better at it ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. 
But let's not miss the fact that the church has been doing this for 2,000 years. The gospel is a supernatural thing. It has prevailed and is continuing to prevail in this world. What does this look like for us? I think one of the elements that's really important is forgiveness. The New Testament speaks very heavily about forgiveness. Maybe the heaviest passage is in Matthew 6. When Jesus goes as far as to say, if you do not forgive someone, you won't be forgiven. That's heavy. Theologians bend over backwards trying to explain that one away. We're saved by faith, not by being forgiving people. <laughs> yeah, we're saved by faith. But I think Jesus' teaching there is pretty plain. If you're not forgiving of others, you don't really get the message that you've been forgiven big time. If you dare think that so-and-so's grievance is bigger than yours, you miss the point. We're all forgiven purely by grace because Jesus died for us. Each of us naturally is owed nothing but wrath. But God forgave us, and so we have to forgive those who have harmed us, wounded us. That has to start in the church. We need to be the type of people who, as Jesus puts it, will come to the altar and before even worshiping, will go out of our way to reconcile with those around us. That's not an easy thing. Partly it's not easy because we don't really understand what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not saying everything's okay. You didn't do anything wrong. In fact, forgiveness is almost the opposite. You can't forgive something if it wasn't wrong in the first place. Forgiveness is also not saying, hey, everything's okay, everything's hunky-dory, we can just go back to doing things the way we were before. No. To do so would be plain foolish. And the truth is, most of us don't have the strength for that. If you've ever been badly wounded by someone, and you've tried to just get over it, you realize there's still too much woundedness there. I can't do this. Forgiveness does not overlook healing and the need for it. Forgiveness does not overlook the need for reconciliation. But forgiveness starts the process. Forgiveness is a conscious choice to say, like Jesus, I will not hold this against you. I will not look for you to repay me. I let go of this debt that has been incurred between us. I forgive you. You might need some boundaries. You might need some space. You have to go through a healing process. But if you wait until you're healed to let go of something, you won't. Forgiveness starts the healing process. It says, I recognize you need grace as much as I do. And through that, I can begin to approach healing and reconciliation. We need to be forgiving people. The church today is fractured largely because people have not forgiven even little grievances against one another. If we're really to be one as Jesus and the Father are one, if we're really going to show the world how supernatural this gospel is, we've got to start forgiving even great debts. Jesus was hanging on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. 
That's our calling too. Then the other component of this is what might simply be called love. Love in action, perhaps. Or as Brian put it a few weeks ago, crazy love. Love that says, I am going to choose to spend my life on other people rather than on myself. This is a daily decision. This is something that we might someday be faced to do on a mega scale, lay down your life for another person. But even simpler than that, each and every moment of each and every day, we have a choice before us. Will I live for me or will I spend my life on someone else? We do that with our family. We do that with our friends. We do that with people we pass on the street. We choose whether the energy, money, strength, gifts that God has given us will be spent to benefit me or to benefit those around me. Again, that has to start in the church. He says, Father, make them, these believers, one, as you and I are one. It's hard to give when you know there's not going to be anything coming back. We have to do that. Jesus says, love your enemies, for even the pagans love their friends. But sometimes we don't even love our friends. Sometimes we don't go out of our way to bless those in our own midst who we know are in this to bless us back. Let's go out of our way to be the type of loving that is so beautiful that even the world says, wow, where did this community come from? Where did these people who are so loving of one another come from? Then we can say, Jesus. The apostles. This comes from the love that was shown to us. What does it mean to be a Christian? To live in love. To die to yourself. To forgive and to spend your life on others. So we have it. I I really think the Christian life summed up in three simple parts. You need to receive Jesus as your Lord. Over and over and over again, recognize, I must submit to the crucified and risen Savior. We must sit down at the feet of the apostles over and over and over again to learn from those who spent their life to get this breakout message made known. And we must love one another. We must be so tightly knit that it's like Jesus and the Father's relationship made visible here on earth. I think there's a little bit of hope for us to hold on to in the closing of this passage. In verse 26, Jesus said, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, this task, especially the last part, laying down our lives for others, dying by living, this can be a daunting task to face. In our own strength, it would be, I would say, an impossible task to face. But one of the things that 
we have seen regularly through these passages in John is that Jesus doesn't say you get to do it alone. Instead, there's a promise that rings clear all through these chapters and is implied deeply in all of this and pointed to in verse 26. That is that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to all those who believe. The truth is, if you receive Jesus as Lord, he has given you his Holy Spirit, his very presence, which in John 16 he describes as the helper, the one who will speak the words of God to you. Do you lean on the Holy Spirit? Do you ask him to fill you? Do you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you the promises and reassurance of Scripture? Do you ask the Holy Spirit to help you see Jesus' love, even when it's hard to see? To help you submit to this crucified and risen Savior? Do you ask the Holy Spirit to help teach you the things of the Apostle? You know what? This book can be awfully hard to understand, but we have the greatest teacher ever in the Holy Spirit. And last but not least, do we say to the Holy Spirit, help me to love those around me. Make me a supernatural presence in this world, a force for healing, a force for good. The Holy Spirit will do that. It's made very clear. In fact, many theologians puzzle at the fact that the Holy Spirit's mentioned multiple times each and every chapter leading up to this point. From John 13 right through to John 16, the Holy Spirit comes up over and over again as a promised presence in our life. And then here in the prayer, Jesus doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit. The answer, I think, is that the Holy Spirit is the means by which all of this will even be fulfilled. that the Holy Spirit will permeate every aspect of our life. And it's in the Holy Spirit that we become united with God and begin to live out his life. Jesus doesn't ask God to send the Holy Spirit. He's sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here. What he asks is that God would use that Spirit to make us into this, these kind of people. This is exciting, I think to know what it is to be a Christian. I want to be that. I'm not there as much as I want to be. I hope we can all press into that and really ask him to make us more and more like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You who sent your son into the world to show us your truth, to reveal your love for us, to die on the cross and to rise again victorious over death that we might have eternal life. And Father, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit into our lives that through the Spirit we can understand your love and we can live that out in a supernatural way in this world. Help us, fill us, be present in this place and in each of our lives so that we can be a model to the world of your saving grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.